Well, welcome. Hope you all have your handouts. Uh, this is the beginning of, stu- of a study on Christian mat- maturity. Okay, uh, the book that we're going to use is this one. It's not easy to get. It's by uh, Sinclair Ferguson. I've ordered a bunch of copies, and they're not here yet. They're supposed to be here this week. So, um, hopefully, we'll have those. You know, that's going to be an outline for our study. We always add all kinds of other stuff too, as you know. Uh, but that'll be an outline. It's a good. He's a good person to lead us through this kind of a study. So Christian maturity, that's kind of a redundant phrase, actually, and I think you'll come to understand that and to appreciate the fact that Christian maturity is redundant. For us, you're not mature unless you're Christian. So I think you'll come to see that, and this is what we're going to explore. Uh, you'll, you'll learn some new things, but also I hope to make you think through some of these things, things that you know that maybe you haven't thought deeply enough about at this point. Let's open with uh, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, which says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So that's one of the many places in the New Testament that talks about maturity, about Christian maturity. Uh, Paul is saying that um, he toils, that he may present us, that he may make us, that we may, it may be obvious that we are mature in Christ. Our relationship with Christ is a mature relationship. Some of the things that we're going to talk about over the next couple of months are going to be those things that show that we can see in ourselves and other people that show that we have that relationship with Christ. So maturity, maturity is relationship with Christ. And I hope to show you uh, that that is absolute. So Paul toils that we might be mature. Um, I've told you the book that we're going to use. So what is maturity? Let's just, today I want to do just a, a background, give you some foundation for what our study is going to be over the next couple of months. So I'd like to talk about maturity in general. Uh, So what is, you know, we say maturity, and everybody automatically thinks, am I mature? Okay. Oh, yes, I am mature. I'm mature. Believe me. You can see the stooping shoulders, the paunch, the chicken neck, the loss of hair. That's maturity. The pain is maturity, too. So that's one type of maturity. But what does it mean? It is, it gives us a standard, a way to be What is maturity? Maturity is a characteristic of created beings. That's us, right? We're created. We have to think about all of these things when we talk about what maturity is. So we're created, but we're also sentient. That means that we're aware of our surroundings. We have a relationship with our surroundings. Lots of created things around here. We got walls, we got rocks, we got animals, okay? Animals, you could say, well, yes, they're aware of their environment. They're sentient, but we could argue that. Are they aware in the same way that we are? Not really. So created sentient beings, created beings that are aware of their surroundings, aware of relationships among other people, with their environment, and with God as well. So maturity is very specific. We could say our dogs are mature. We say those kinds of things. 
But what do we really mean when we say that? Maturity is isolated to human beings. Maturity also tells us, okay, we say that we're mature. That implies a change, doesn't it? You know, we were little once, and now we're grown up. We were immature once. Some of us are more mature now, okay? It's a change that happens in your life as you go along. Can maturity go up and down? Is that a possibility? You know, sometimes we say that um, as we get older or in certain phases in our lives, you know, maybe when you're a teenager or maybe when you're in your 30s, maybe when you get older, some people say you're becoming less mature. My sister, when we were growing up, always used to say, you're not being very mature, okay? Of course, that was in comparison to her, right? So maturity is evidence of change, okay? It's also evidence of comparison, too. We do those kinds of things. Maturity is not an absolute characteristic. It's a comparison from one thing to another. Does it go up and down? We could argue that. How about what, is, what are antonyms? To being mature. What is not being mature? Well, I looked that up. There's a whole bunch of words that are given as antonyms. Uh, ignorance, impotence, inability, incompetence, stupidity, decline, downfall, imperfection, incompleteness, stoppage, childhood, minority, and youth. All those are antonyms. They're opposites of maturity. In, in particular, though, we should think about these two words in this list, imperfection and incompleteness. As we study through this, you'll see that that's really, those are the characteristics of uh, maturity, is being whole in Christ, being perfected in Christ. Not that we're perfect, not that we're holy as he is, but we talk about this, the Bible talks about this, being perfected in Christ. So the opposite, imperfection incompleteness. Sometimes we don't feel that we're mature because we're incomplete. We don't have that full relationship with Christ, or perhaps we become isolated in our, in our lives uh, from Christ or from our thoughts of Christ. So incompleteness, the lack of wholeness, okay, is immaturity. Maturity is wholeness, completeness. It's what we strive to be, mature in Christ. Immaturity is relative, okay? We're more or less mature than the others in this room, okay? And we always compare ourselves to others. And, you know, those comparisons are useful. Um, it helps us examine ourselves, helps us to um, see if we are where we'd like to be. It helps us to see if we're progressing. Am I more mature in Christ than I was yesterday, 10 years ago? 60 years ago? Am I more mature? It's a, it's a relative thing, things that are changing. So, get back to another basic concept. You know, we say that because we're created, we change, all right? We like to use this word mutable, okay, because it makes us seem mature, doesn't it? Uh, we're mutable beings. Because we're created, we change, it was this mutability, this change, this change, or this tendency to change, which caused us to sin at the outset. You know, God created man upright, and what happened? We changed. We went into sinfulness. 
So maturity, this changing thing that happens with us, this thing that uh, in which we're gaining characteristics or maturity over time, is a reflection of our mutability. Okay, so you know we usually talk about mutability in terms of sin. Okay, I suppose as Presbyterians we tend to do that. We tend to think about sin right away, but you know mutability also gives us the ability to improve. God works on us. The Holy Spirit works on us. In his providence, we're brought closer to him. So mutability, the ability to change, is a positive attribute also. God brings us to himself. Some ways you could say, if there is no hope of change, there is no hope. We know our hearts we know our imperfection. Uh, we live in repentance unto life, according to our standards, don't we? Uh, but our hope is that God changes us, he matures us, he brings us to himself. So mutability, maturity is a part. It's a representation of our mutability. It's a representation of uh, how we can change and that God works on us we are clay, right? God changes us to bring us to himself. Um, you know, I like poetry. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a bit of poetry today. Not as much as I would like to, but um, let's start here. Remember, the concept that we're working on right now is the idea that maturity is a complete relationship with Jesus Christ. This first poem uh, by Richard Wilbur Richard Wilbur was um, one of the great poets of the 1900s, of the last century. He lived up to about 20, 2017. Um, he's a Christian man. If you were to read through his complete works, if you weren't a Christian, you may not get that, okay? But you guys reading through his complete works, you'd say, ah, that's about God. Oh, that's about relationship with God. He expresses these things so well. He has such a complete knowledge of his Bible and of a lot of other things that you can see his Christianity. Christians can see that. So this first poem is called Under a Tree by Richard Wilbur. A couple of typographical errors. I'm sorry on your uh, handout. First of all, in the second line, it should be wood, W-O-O-D, wood nymphs, okay? And in the third uh, stanza... Second line, it should say limbs. There's a typographical error. But let me read through this. Under a tree. We know those tales of gods in hot pursuit who frightened wood nymphs into taking root and changing then into a branchy shape, fair but perplexing to the thought of rape. But this, we say, is more how love is made Ply and reply of limbs in, in fire-shot shade, where overhead we hear tossed leaves consent to take the wind in free dishevelment, and answering with supple blade and stem, caress the gusts that are caressing them. Now, just listening to that, even if you don't have any understanding at the first shot, you can, you can see that this is beautifully written language. The other thing I wanted to say about poetry, poetry is the pinnacle of language, okay? When we're mature, okay, we do poetry, okay? 
That's one aspect that you should learn while we're here. Uh, God tells us that. Our relationship with God should say to us, poetry is important. Poetry is the pinnacle. Psalms, the poetic books. Some would say that all of the Old Testament should be written in verse, and that is probably true. So looking at a poem like this, a little tough the first time you read it, but uh, as you go through, we learn a lot of things from these poems. It twists your mind a little bit. It makes you think a bit more deeply. Uh, Pastor Snodgrass said to me one time, he asked me this question, what's the best reading of a poem? Mine wasn't the best reading this time, but what is the best reading of a poem? Trick question. The answer is the 100th. Okay, what does that mean? It means that you need to read these things over and over and over and over and over again. And as you do that, you'll come to an understanding of what they mean. So, under a tree, he begins by speaking about some old pagan religions, non-Christian religions. We could say old, but this also relates to our day today in a figurative way. We know those tales of gods in hot pursuit who frightened wood nymphs into taking root. God's pursuing beings, created beings. In this case, wood nymphs, you know, a story being. It's not a real being. We know those tales of gods in hot pursuit who frightened wood nymphs into taking root. Wood nymphs can change back and forth between kind of people-like beings and trees. So if they take root, they turn into trees, Nobody knows it's them, and the gods can't get them anymore. So these are gods that are, um, in a sense, abusing the people of the world. We know those tales of gods in hot pursuit who frightened wood nymphs into taking root and changing then into a branchy shape, a tree, fair but perplexing to the thought of rape. Fair but perplexing to the thought of rape. They're safe at this point. The gods were pursuing them. Uh, they were afraid of their gods. Their gods weren't nurturing, maturing. They were gods of conquest. Uh, our god is a god of conquest in a way. But what is the conquest there? Our god brings us to himself, okay, that we might have relationship with him. So in the third stanza here, he says, but this, we say, is more how love is made not in that old way, not in the way of the gods being in conquest of people and uh, abusing people. But this, we say, is more how love is made, ply and reply of limbs in fireshot shade. Ply and reply. person comes up to you. He might ply your brain. I might come to you and say, can you tell me about this? He might come to me and say, do you know anything about this? I'm plying my relationship. I'm plying your brain. I'm plying this interaction. So he says, ply and reply of limbs in fire shot shade. This is more speaking in a figure term of, of physical relationship, isn't it? Ply and reply. You might think of a hug. Ply and reply. We can be hugged by somebody, or we can hug and hug back. It'd be both ways, right? So ply and reply of limbs in fire shot shade. Where overhead we hear tossed leaves consent to take the wind and free dishevelment. Okay? Overhead. We're under the tree. Okay? We're under the tree. We're overhead. We hear tossed leaves consent. 
leaves tossed by the wind, right? We can hear the leaves and then to take the wind in free dishevelment. The leaves are not only being blown by the wind, but they're having a relationship. It's back and forth, one caressing the other, you know, ply and reply, okay? We're overhead, we hear tossed leaves consent to take the wind in free dishevelment and answering with supple blade and stem, answering this wind. What do we think of wind? We think of the spirit, right? We talk about a spiritual relationship. We talk about the spirit who comes into our lives, who plies our lives, and we have relationship back and forth with God. And that's where God is bringing us in answering with supple blade and stem, caress the gusts that are caressing them. Caress the gusts that are caressing them. This is a relationship that goes in both directions, right? The wind comes through the leaves, blows the leaves, but the leaves are flapping back and forth. The branches are going back and forth. You know that this is the way trees are. They might push back against the wind. It's a relationship. This is a depiction, if we could look at it, more and more and more, if we ever got to the 100th reading that Pastor Snodgrass said we should do, uh, we would see this is a contrast between unbelief and belief. It's a contrast between uh, not having a relationship with God and having a relationship with God. So it's ply and reply. It's the gusts blowing the leaves and the branches and the branches and the leaves responding to that. And that is a state of maturity in your relationship with God. If you think about this, if you get to that hundredth reading, you think about this, this is where God wants to bring us, isn't it? He brings us into relationship with him so we can appreciate him, glorify him, and enjoy him forever, okay? And also, he nurtures us. It's a two-way relationship. Um, So it's not a relation of conquest or domination, Yes, God is sovereign, but it is a person-to-person relationship. It's different than what's depicted by the uh, fictitious gods of old. Uh, it's, a, it's a mutual and reciprocal relationship. Um, it's the place where God and his sovereignty brings us in relationship to him. Um, and again, in a real sense, the non-Christian will never be mature, okay? Maturity is equal to being Christian. So, I hope you enjoyed that poem. Keep reading it. Get to your 100th reading. You'll enjoy it even more. So, maturity, again, in a general sense, is maturity age-related. We tend to think that it is. Maturity is a comparative term, as we've said. One person to another. What we're like now is what we were like before comparison to what we used to be, comparing to each other. In humanistic terms, in non-Christian language, um, there are various aspects of maturity, various aspects of chronological age. Uh, We tend to think about maturity chronologically. But, you know, we tend to think about what? Neurologic development, social development, intellectual development, professional development, physical development, but for us mostly it's development in our relationship with God. 
which you know affects all of those other things that I just listed for you. The, uh, in society, in non-Christian society, they're going to talk about the first five of these. Neurologic, social, intellectual, professional, physical, that's what makes you mature. Are you mature in your profession? Are you mature in society? But we know without maturity in Christ, all the rest of that means nothing and really leads to no maturity. You talk about different types of age, chronological age, the appearance of age. This is the appearance of age. Uh, biological age, mental age, all kinds of age. But it is a chronological type of thing. If we define maturity just out of the dictionary, the state, fact, or period of being mature. That doesn't tell us anything, does it? Uh, But it means fully developed, physically, fully grown, advanced stage of mental or emotional development. It's the way we think about maturity, isn't it? Careful and thorough. Another way to think about maturity. Um, maturity breeds care and thoroughness, okay? When you see somebody, you could say that if they are mature, they've got themselves together, they're working through things carefully. Um, they're careful, they're thorough. That's the characteristics of a mature person in one sense. Um, used to be maturity was used to describe middle age or elderliness, Okay. Um, also describes the most advanced stage in a process. The process is mature, you know. Uh, Roy's a chemist. He knows that when that is, when that process, that chemical process is finished, it's mature. You get your final result, okay? So the final stage of a process. And then finally, maturity, well-developed emotionally, okay? These are the way, these are the dictionary definitions of maturity. These are the way we tend to think about them uh, in our everyday life. Well developed emotionally. That's not very well defined, is it? I mean, which of us is well developed emotionally? You might say, look at ourselves, look at me. You could say that he's relatively restrained, okay? He's not all over the place. Those of you that know me better know that I am. Okay, but at least I can present myself as being restrained. You'd say I'm well-developed emotionally. But we also know there's this churning that goes on inside of us. Are we resting in Christ as we should? Do we know Christ as we should? Are we emulating Christ as we should? This turmoil that's inside of us reflects an immaturity. And you could ask yourself, When do we ever get to the state of maturity of that full relationship with Christ? Sometimes we look for that final time, the time when we're glorified after we die, as being that perfect relationship. But you know, we're created beings. Um, We're going to grow in our relationship with Christ forever. That's our joy, is to be growing in Christ now and in the afterlife as well. We are limited beings. We can't take everything at once. And one of God's blessings for us is that we will continually grow in him. So, appearing to be emotionally well-developed, but um, maybe not so, Uh, probably not so. Um, Let's see. (laughs) 
I was, I was going to go through this list of signs of being mature. And just listen to this list. This is, again, humanistic stuff, okay? Signs that you are mature. You discuss ideas, not people. Okay? You love yourself as much as you love anyone else. Well, it gets close to us, doesn't it, right? The great commandments, whatever. But when we know that this is coming from a humanistic outlet, it has some other implication to it. You love yourself as much as you love anybody else. Well, I'm most important, right? I love myself, okay? Is that maturity? Uh, in a sense, in a Christian sense it is, the great commandments. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. But in human society, humanistic society, it means something else. It means that the focus is only on you. Number three, you take responsibility for all that is yours, regardless of whose fault it may be. might be his fault, but yeah, I'll take responsibility. Well, that's really disingenuous. Is that maturity, or is that some kind of dis? connected way of dealing with the world. You take responsibility for all that is yours, regardless of whose fault it may be. For me, it's always your fault. Just remember that, okay? All right? But I'll take responsibility, right? Just like the politicians, right? You, uh, number four, you understand that not everything requires your opinion. That's hard for me, okay? I think that everything requires my opinion, but... If you're mature, you understand that not everything requires your opinion. I don't think I'll ever get there. But Number five, you keep a mind open to everything and attached to nothing. Humanistic philosophy, right? You keep a mind open to everything and attached to nothing. We're attached to Jesus Christ. Number six, you give before you receive. What does that mean? I better get out there and do it before somebody does it to me? I don't know. But this is supposed to be a sign of maturity. You give before you receive. Number seven, you're straight with your communication, regardless of how unsexy it may be perceived, meaning that you're being real honest with somebody in front of you, okay, no matter whether that offends people or not. So you're straight with your communication. Number eight, you've stopped giving off the, the image of perfection, knowing no one can relate to it. You've stopped giving off the image of perfection, knowing, knowing no one can relate to it. I have a friend who used to say, you don't, you don't walk into a room with your chest out, okay? Like, you're the guy. You're going to fill the room. You're the perfect one here. You've, you've stopped giving off the image of perfection, knowing no one can relate to it. Not because you don't understand your own imperfection. You don't understand your own depravity. You, you stop giving off this image not because you don't believe that you're perfect, right? It's just that you don't want to offend everybody else with it. This is a sign of maturity, okay? doesn't relate to our Christian walk at all. Number nine, you quiet the voice in your head that insists something is always wrong, okay? You quiet the voice in your head that insists that something is always wrong. That's hard, isn't it? You know, we're always evaluating things. Nothing's right. You go to the grocery store, the lady doesn't ring up your groceries right, or you're doing it yourself, the machine doesn't work. You know, the world is falling apart. This is a terrible place to be. We're not thinking about the sovereignty of God, are we? We're not talking about God, the fact that God is working perfection. But that's not really what they're talking about here. They just uh, want you to live in some kind of extra 
terrestrial state, some kind of extra uh, emotional state. And number 10, you don't seek what you want, you create it. You like that? Boy, that's far away from us, isn't it? You don't seek what you want, you create it. That's, that's ambiguous, okay? You know, we do things every day. We work. We solve problems, okay? Uh, we might make something. We might paint a room. Uh, we might make a cake. Yes, we make things. Uh, but this sign of maturity, you don't seek what you want, you create it. What a massive confusion. Those ten things do nothing but confuse your head. Look at um, our relationship with Christ. We have a focus. We have someone that we know is perfect. There's perfection there. Uh, we have somebody that we can learn about more and more all the time. We have somebody who's, with whom our relationship develops. Okay? Um, that's not confused. Although we may not understand it all, we do have this focus. We do have this object of our faith that keeps us from getting so confused about all of these things. The other thing about maturity, you guys, we have to remember that we're Presbyterians, right? Presby, okay? We're ruled by a body of elders, right? Um, we value the um, characteristic of maturity, maturity in Christ, maturity in your life in this world. We are Presbyterians. So the study of maturity is uh, important from that standpoint as well. I put in your handout uh, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 and 1 through 7. You know, we just read these characteristics of uh, humanistic maturity. Uh, listen to the contrast here. Uh, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. A lot of characteristics of maturity. What this is saying is we want people who rule, we're Presbyterian, who are elders that show evidence of maturity in Christ. It doesn't mean that they're fully mature in Christ. As I say, our life is made of pursuing that mature, maturity forever. But these are some of the characteristics that may show that we are mature in Christ. The uh, three, the one through seven, is about um, elders. Uh, it's very similar. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, meaning that he must not be early in his, in his Christian walk. He needs to have some knowledge and relationship with Christ. 
He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into grace, uh, into the snare of the devil. Again, these are pictures of Christian maturity. We could spend a lifetime talking about these two paragraphs, okay? But it gives you a sense of what it means to be in Christ and how to function in this world. We function in the church in these ways. We want to have these characteristics within the church. And it gives us a sense of what Christian maturity is as opposed to humanistic maturity, that confusion that I just, uh, I just read to you. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, it's on your handout again. Um, him we proclaim, we've read this already, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may uh, present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Acknowledges the sovereignty of God in our maturity, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it, and even now you are not, you are not yet ready. Now, it's a little bit of confusing speech, but you know we use this verse quite a bit. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. It's an interesting way to say this. He's talking about maturity, isn't he? Could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Okay? He's asserting that the people that he's talking to have received some of his teaching on Christ. Okay? Because they're infants in Christ. Okay? They're young. They're not quite mature yet. And he says again, I could not address you as spiritual people. What does that mean? If we're in Christ, we are spiritual, right? But what is he saying here? Could not address you as spiritual people. You're not functioning in your day-by-day life as people who are spiritual, who are living in Christ. Even though you have a relationship with Christ, you're not really there yet. You're not fully suffused with uh, Christ in everything that you do. You remember this, you remember our first poem about the wind, the spirit coming through the leaves and the leaves responding, the leaves and the branches responding. That tree is suffused with the wind. The wind goes through the entire tree, okay? It doesn't go around to this leaf and that leaf. It suffuses the entire tree. That's maturity. It's full spiritual involvement with God. Uh, Maybe you're not fully functionally mature yet, but you've got this spiritual orientation in all that you do. And Paul is saying here, I could not address you as spiritual people. He means fully spiritual people, okay? He addressed them instead as people of the flesh, those who are not spiritual, okay? Uh, As infants in Christ. And then he talks about feeding with milk instead of solid food, so forth and so on. So Paul's description, contrast between maturity and immaturity not spiritual. Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay? Uh, this is what it is to be spiritual. This is what it is to be, mature, to be mature. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
maturity, knowledge, relationship with Jesus Christ. Not only that, but this verse acknowledges what? Where does that power come from? It comes from Jesus Christ. Okay? When we're immature, what do we do? We're doing it all ourselves, aren't we? I can do it. I'm going to go in. I'm going to get this done. Okay? If we're mature, if we're more mature in Christ, we know that we rest upon him. We pray to him for what he would have our lives be. Okay? And so that's mature, isn't it? To know that you're in the hands of God. You people, we know this from our previous lives as we're maturing in Christ. We also know this in other people. How much are we submitted to God? Okay? How much do we know that he determines our lives? Uh, providence, right? How much do we rest on that and know it and accept it? It's a sign of maturity. Ephesians 2 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay? Contrasting again uh, what it is to be in the world as opposed to being in Christ, mature as opposed to immature. Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Okay? Again, same thing. What, it is, what is it to be mature? We have the riches. It is God that makes us mature. We have the riches of his glory. He has granted that we be strengthened. We be made stronger. We, we mature with the power through his spirit in your inner being. Again, it's this relationship. Your spirit is there. I like that image of the wind going through the trees. This is a back and forth relationship. It's a ply and reply. Okay, we're living in Christ. Our dialogue is with him. And uh, I don't know if I put the first Thessalonians in there, but a representation of this life in Christ is that uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, we pray without ceasing. Our dialogue is constantly in Christ in everything that we do. And so our life is shown um, by the fact we know that we are living constantly in dialogue with Christ. Um, so Paul is saying there that at times we're, we're not ready for a fuller knowledge of Christ. We have our leaders, we have our pastors who are guiding us along, okay? We're immature. We probably, you know, I always feel immature. I always feel that I need more, okay? I need more teaching. I always feel that I'm dependent, okay, on those who are preaching to me, that I might grow in relationship with Christ. And they meet that out to us. They know us individually. You know, our sermons are directed toward this particular congregation. It's not a sermon to the world. It is a sermon to the world, but it is more specific for us. What we hear from the pulpit is something that is directed toward us at our, at our particular state of maturity. And that's true even though we've got a whole congregation, we have a, we have a sanctuary full of people. These things are specific, and if they're, they're uh, meant to speak to us specifically. Um, so this is similar, this, this business of um, us constantly maturing throughout eternity. You're, you want more of Christ. might remind you of our discussion of love from a couple of years, a couple of years ago. We had this, our series on love, uh, the Augustinian aspect of love. 
Augustine says love is a kind of craving of something for its own sake. That's uh, Augustine's definition. Love is a kind of craving of something for its own sake. Maturity is the same way. We could say we're mature. Why? Because we crave God. We crave Jesus Christ. That's a sign of maturity. I mean, you may know this much. Actually, we only know this much about Christ. Okay? No matter how long we've been around and doing this, we only know this much. Our maturity is reflected in the fact that we crave him more. We love him. We crave further relationship with him. Love is a kind of craving. It's a sign of maturity. It's not the amount that you know. Can you recite the whole Bible? Can you recite all kinds of things? Can you recite the Westminster Standards? It's a sign of maturity that you crave to be with him, in him, and like him. And God gives us um, that blessing of, of craving him. Um, we, can, we tend again to think about um, maturity in terms of age. We don't really think about maturity enough today. You guys have heard this and read it, newspapers, you know, nobody's mature anymore. We think about all these different um, generations, right? We have Gen Z, iGen, or Centennials. I can't keep all these things straight. Gen Z, iGen, and Centennials are the same thing. Okay, born 96 to 2015. We have Millennials. We know Millennials. Everybody talks about them all the time. Uh, we have Generation X. We have Baby Boomers. We're starting to not talk about the Baby Boomers so much because Baby Boomers are dying off. We're dying off, guys. Uh, you'll be rid of us soon, okay? Uh, but we talk about them as an entity, as a group, baby boomers. Uh, do we talk to them, talk about them as our elders, as the people that have been through a little bit of life that we might learn something from, despite ourselves and despite them? Uh, we don't think about um, the characteristics of those who are our elders, the characteristics of maturity, to the extent that past baby boomers going in, 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 in arrears, before the baby boomers, they called them traditionalists or the silent generation, okay? Um, the silent generation. That means we're not learning from them anymore, okay? That maturity kind of thing we put aside. This is what I'm trying to say is that this is the orientation of our society. We talk about these various groups but are we really talking about maturity? Are we really talking about how we advance and how we're uh, mature in Christ? So, um, again, that's the humanistic approach. Our approach is how much do you know your Lord and Savior? Um, how much do you know um, the, your own position with relation to Jesus Christ? How much do you hunger for Christ? A kind of craving for him. Um, our author, and hopefully, again, I'll have your books before too long, um, says that one of our distractions away from maturity is that we're always looking for immediate gratification, okay? Uh, we always want to feel good about whatever's happening at any particular time. Some people would say that video games do that for you. You know, you run 30 seconds and you've won, okay? What did you win? I don't know what you won, you know? Or... You could say also that uh, video games work against immediate gratification and cause frustration. 
Because you get done with one, you got to go to the next level, the next level, the next level. It goes on forever and ever and ever. You keep making ex extensions to the game, right? You never have gratification. So you can seek too much immediate gratification, or you can seek the appropriate amount of gratification. Where is your gratification? Is it an empty gratification of this world, of a video game, okay? Um, or is it a gratification in Jesus Christ? When I was in medical school and before, they always told us one of the main things that we had to do is we had to be certain that we knew that we were going we to be delaying gratification. You've got to get good at delaying gratification because you had college, medical school, residency. That's 14 years for some of us. And there's going to be no gratification until that happens. Well, of course, that wasn't true. We had lots of gratification in our education. We got to learn things. We got to do good things. Uh, but this emphasis on gratification. And then, of course, when you get into practice, you still don't get gratification a lot of times. Because what? Your focus is on your patience. It's not on this money, which people say is gratification. So... Delay of gratification, again, it's too much of an emphasis on gratification. We have gratification. We live in Christ. We have moment-by-moment moment gratification. You can imagine a doctor going through his education. And, you know, in many ways, it's gratification step-by-step step because you're doing things, you're doing good things in Christ. It's all gratification. And yet we always had all these... Uh, discussions about how we had to be ready to delay gratification. What they really meant was that we needed to apply ourselves to what we were doing, not think about all of these other things. You need to be mature even at your early level. You needed to rest in some higher ethic. For some of us, that was Jesus Christ, and that's where we, get, we got uh, gratification. The other thing that happens in our society today... Um, Gosh, I'm not going to get to some of the poems. I know you guys are disappointed, but um, we'll mature you into that, hopefully, during this. The other thing that happens today is people tend to withdraw, okay? It's another sense of immaturity. Again, we're talking about maturity in general here, just a foundation here before we get into the real meat of these things in the weeks to come. And one, they even, there's even a, uh, a term for this uh, tendency to withdraw. We get sick of the world, okay? So we tend not to confront the world. And we're supposed to confront the world. God gives this to us. He gives it to us for what? For our sanctification. We learn, we grow in Christ, okay? Um, he gives us this. We should confront the world. We don't go into our little cave and not confront it. You know, that was sort of fun at the beginning of... Uh, COVID, wasn't it? I could be at home and nobody's going to bother me, okay? But we are meant to confront the world. The Christian is meant to confront the world. For the world, they call it goblin mode. There's a word. It's called goblin mode. And there's actually a definition in the dictionary. Goblin mode is the idea of rejecting societal expectations put upon us in favor of doing whatever you want, Okay? It's the idea of rejecting societal expectations. I don't have to function in society. I don't have to do anything productive 
right with the other people that I interact with, whether it's work or family or whatever. Makes no difference. I can go into goblin mode, ignore it all, and do whatever I want to do. Uh, what goes along with goblin mode is uh, people in goblin mode are unapologetically lazy, slovenly, greedy, self-indulgent, typically in a way that rejects social norms. That's not the Christian way. That's not Christian maturity, but we have a tendency in our society today to go in that direction, to go in goblet mode, to reject rather than confront. Now, we'll discuss in the future, you know, we're supposed to be uh, meek, we're supposed to um, uh, confront the world as children, that means in a good Christian ethical way. We'll talk more about that. But we're not supposed to be in goblin mode. You're not mature if you're in goblin mode. You're not supposed to be isolating. You're supposed to see what your position in the world is. You're supposed to give Christ to the world. You're supposed to confront the world. One of the things when we're not mature, remember, being mature is being a Christian. One of the things about being not mature or not Christian is that you reject the world and you don't interact with what God has given us. We don't do the work that he has given us to do. And so we're not supposed to be in goblin mode. Well, again, I'm disappointed we didn't get to the next two poems, but I think we'll save them for the next time. Um, you might read them a hundred times uh, over the next week. Uh, they're both good. There's a, there's a Wordsworth here, and there's another Wilbur here. And we'll, we'll discuss the principles that go along with those two poems. And, of course, we'll have more scripture next time as well. But um, uh, I, I should be apologetic that I do all the talking. But please know that I'm available to you guys. If you guys want to come up and talk or talk in between, if you want to give me a call. Uh, if you say, if you think I didn't get something through well enough, give me a call, send me an email, whatever, and say, look, you need to flesh this out a bit better, Okay. But let me know. The dialogue is always here. I try to get through a lot of stuff and give you some exposure to a lot of things during these sessions, but we should have a chance to dialogue as well. Okay? So you've got your handouts. There's uh, some additional biblical references there you can, you can look at with regard to maturity. Um, and a couple poems there too, which also speak very well of maturity. Uh, so we'll go over those between now and next week, and we'll discuss those at that time. Okay? Why don't we close in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we